The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Acts chapter number 2. Today we're uh, going to be looking at verse number 22 down through verse number 32. So will you follow along with me? Acts chapter number 2, verse number 22 reads this way. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us even until today. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses." Let's go to the word uh, to the Lord in prayer today. Our Father, we come to you at this time and we thank you for all of the all of today, even on this Labor Day weekend. What a beautiful what a beautiful uh, day it is in your house. Uh, Bible study before we thank you for all of our teachers and those that came to Bible study and learning and fellowshipping and growing together. We thank you for that. And then, dear Lord, this I, I feel like this has just been a wonderful worship service. I feel as if many of the people have actually come today to worship you and honor you, that, that our minds are focused. And it's a great time of giving and praying and singing about your wonderful Son and Spirit, whom you have sent forth to bring salvation to the hearts of unbelievers and encourage those who have believed. And now, Lord, we've come to this time where we open up your Word, and as if it is the bread of life, we, we want to break it, and we ask that you would give us food today. Lord, we are reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ that said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we pray today that You would sustain us, that You would feed us today from Your Word, and we will thank You for all that You do in advance. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Today I want to speak to you just from this passage as we still remain in our catechism, but question 22 through 24 really deal with several of the same issues, and most of that is surrounding and speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is both uh, He is both uh, human and He is divine, that He is the incarnate Son of God. And so today I just want to talk to you for a few minutes about what makes a good sermon. What, what makes a good sermon? Uh, years ago, I was in a sermon delivery class and uh, at the seminary, and there was a, a particular fella in the class, and, and for the entire semester, he was, uh, he was grading for another teacher on campus, and he, uh, he, he kept telling all of us, you know, just a little arrogant, you know what I mean? He kept telling us guy, that he knew what he was doing, and he knew all this, and knew all this, and I, I remember that, uh, you know, several of us in the class, well, I'm not grading for anybody, and this guy must know what he's doing and lo and behold it came his turn to preach in the class and uh, when he finished preaching Dr. Aiken stood up and uh, he, he was uh, you know offering critique of the sermons and I remember he said well son you missed the whole point of the text oh my goodness brothers and sisters that's the worst thing you can hear as a preacher, okay? You miss the whole point of the text. That is not something you want to hear in a sermon delivery class, and that's certainly not something you want to do on a Sunday morning. What I want to offer us today is to say that each and every one of us with our own lives and with our words, we are a living sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with our words and with our life, we preach sermons. And today we want to look at what are the components of preaching a good sermon, not only on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday evenings as we gather around the Word of God, but how in your life as a husband, as a father, in your life as a friend and as a worker, how can you speak good sermons with your words and how can you live good sermons with the life that you live? What are the good good components that make up a good sermon. I, I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon. He uh, had a school for preachers and he was notorious for when the students would walk in, he would often just hand them uh, a text out of the Bible somewhere and sit down and he would say, your turn to preach. No preparation, no time to study. And so these, guys, these poor brothers would have to get up and they would, they would have to give a sermon. And one guy, he gave the text of Zacchaeus. You remember the story of Zacchaeus being up in the tree? And so the whole, the whole class long, he's thinking, I can't study. I don't know how to look at this. What am I supposed to say? And here it is, his turn to stand up and deliver the word. And so all he knew to do was he stood up and he said, Zacchaeus was up a tree and so am I. Zacchaeus came down, and then he sat down in the class. <laughs> well, when we're, speaking, when we're speaking the sermons of our life with our words, and when we're speaking the sermons of the Word of God with our lives, we need to have more to say than just, we're up a tree, it's time for us to sit down. We need to know what are the good components of a good sermon. And so I believe as we make our way here into this text, we see uh, right in the middle here of the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. That's really where we pick up. And I think we can find some pointers out of the Apostle Peter's sermon and we can say, hey, that's the kind of lives, that's the kind of words, that's the kind of way that we should live and the sermons that we should preach. So I would say, first of all, one of the components of a good sermon is simply that it must be Christ-centered. 
We don't want to preach the kind of sermons that are self-centered. We don't want to be, preach the kind of sermons that stand on our own soapbox. We don't want to preach political sermons. We don't want to preach all these other kind of sermons. We don't preach the kind of sermons that make much of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? The Bible says that Jesus said, when I'm high and lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. And the fundamental message of the Word of God is Jesus Christ. And if you're not preaching a Christ-centered sermon, whether it's the preacher on Sunday morning, whether it's the speaker on Wednesday night or whether it's you with your family and in your life and your work, if you're not preaching a Christ-centered life and a Christ-centered sermon, then you're not preaching the right kind of sermon. Look back with me if you would. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse number 22, 23, and 24 and you'll see that the Apostle Peter here, he just totally deals with the entire life of Jesus Christ. Verse number 22, he speaks of the life or the incarnation of Christ. Look what he says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as yourselves know. Now, look back here where he says, men of Israel. He's simply dealing with this congregation of preachers and the people and he says, Jesus the Nazarene. You know, when I see that, it makes me think about the passage of Scripture where all of those dejectors of the Lord Jesus Christ, they said, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? They accused Jesus of being insane. They said that He was mad. They said that He had a devil. They said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They said that He was an illegitimate child. And they, they, had, they railed against Him with all of these accusations. And now the Apostle Peter, in his sermon, deals with the incarnation and the life of Jesus. And he says, hey boys, you remember that Jesus of Nazareth that you really didn't like? Guess what? God attested to Him that He is the Messiah, the Lord. Jesus Christ. The word where it says God attested, it means that God set him forward. It's as if it is a trophy there on the case that God looks down to all humanity and says, you look over there and you remember that Jesus of Nazareth that you were making fun of, that you wanted to crucify, that you wanted Barabbas to be released, you wanted him to die. We'll not have this man to rule over us. That is the one who is the promised Messiah. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. You can hear those voices, can't you? Whispering in the background. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? He's mad. Look at what he's done. We'll not have this man rule over us, but I can hear the voice of heaven and so can you at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. And then look what the text says down in verse number 22. It's not so much three components as it is one divided into two. And so he says here, attested to you by miracles. And the real word here is not only miracles, but it's mighty works. It is dynamo. It is power that Jesus was presented to be the Messiah, the Savior, the promised one to come with great powerful miracles. And it was done by signs and wonders. And did you know that almost every single time in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament that you see this signs and wonders together, that they go hand in hand, that God gives wonders and miracles for specific purposes, not just for this or for that, but so that we might be pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. When I see these hoodlums on the television going about as if they can heal people at the drop of a hat, a couple of things come to my mind. First of all is, why don't you go down to the local hospital and heal everybody that has cancer, Amen. 
And if you don't have that kind of power, sit down and be quiet. Amen, that's right. <laughs> How many broken hearts are in the world? And people dying and suffering. When you see signs and miracles in the Bible, it is always in attestation to the Lord Jesus Christ. When I see these fellas in thousand dollar suits with big old wafty hairdos and, they don't, and they're living high off of poor people's money that are desperate for a miracle and they give everything they have and these people are flying around on their $75 million planes, that's a bunch of hogwash and it's wrong. No. Healing and miracles in Scripture always attest and point us to Jesus Christ. Even when Peter says, he says to the man, silver and gold I don't have any of, but what I have I give you. And even when the people started to worship Peter and Paul and Barnabas, even when they were worshiping, they said, no, 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 don't you worship us. You turn to Jesus Christ. But not only his life, I would look at verse number 23 and see His crucifixion. Interesting verse. You, this, is one of the, this is one of the hallmark verses of the Bible where all of my Calvinist friends and all of my Arminian friends, everybody gets angry at this verse. They all claim it for their own. And I'm so glad that Jesus put it in here so that none of you would get it right. Look at, the, look at the verse. Both sides. Look at what it says. This man Jesus. Notice now. Delivered over by the predeterminate plan and foreknowledge of God. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the crucifixion wasn't some, some sort of accident. The crucifixion wasn't something that happenstance. The crucifixion wasn't something that, that just came about. and They carried Jesus off as if He was some sort of poor, suffering man. What I want you to know is that the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. You can listen to the community of the Trinity in eternity past speaking about the salvific work for mankind and the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, comes forward in eternity past and He dies for us. The cross is not an accident. It is the design, decreed plan of the living God of heaven. Look at the rest of the verse. You, nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men, and put Him to death. In one verse, both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings pooled together. And you say, how do I explain that totally? You don't. You marvel at it. And you say that God is in absolute control of the absolute design of salvation and He decrees that even wicked people carry out His plan. And at the same time, on the other side, you say we are totally responsible for our sin and our shame and we belong in an eternity without Christ. You nailed Him to the cross by wicked hands.
You know what's also interesting in this verse is to notice that in verse number 22, he says, hey, you men of Israel, right? And so not only does it bring in the Jew in this, but what does it say? And, and you, these wicked men, and most of the time in the New Testament when it's speaking of the wicked men, this, this term here, it is speaking of Gentiles. So I want to say today, nobody escapes, both the Jew, both the Gentile, and all people in the world. We are guilty under our sin and the weight of our wickedness, but Thanks be unto God that Jesus died on the cross to take our sin away. Amen? And I just want to, I want to say this today. If you're in the room today and you don't think that, you are, uh, that, that you're a bad sinner and you've fallen short of the glory of God, then let me just drop the rock on you and say, God wants you to know that you are a wicked, terrible sinner and you need Jesus Christ. But I also want to come back on the other side. There may be somebody in the room today and maybe you're already beating yourself over the head. Maybe you're already saying, I know I'm a poor sinner. I failed. I've come short. I know that I've I've done wrong. You should see my life. These walls are going to cave in on me. I want you to know that you're not far from the goodness and the mercy of Christ. Flee to Jesus. He died for your sin. He died for your shame. He died for all of your past history. And if you'll come to Him, He'll save you by His marvelous and wonderful work. Amen. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new life. He'll reestablish you in the ways that you ought to be. He will give you an eternal destiny in heaven. He'll give you a new family. He'll give you a new home. Come to Jesus today through the work of Jesus on the cross. His life, His death. Look at what Peter says in verse number 24. What do good sermons contain? They contain Christ-centered gospel. His life, His death, verse number 24, doesn't leave us in the tomb. But God raised Him up Again, putting an end to the agony of death. Some of your uh, translations may say something like the birth pains of death. There's a metaphor, a twisted metaphor in this passage that's going on, but I think it's right and good. I was, I was reading this week how everybody's interpreting in this and working through it, but I think you ought to just leave it alone. Look at what it says here. Through the agonies or the birth pains of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Brothers and sisters, what it's saying here is that for all the eons of time, now, since the fall of humanity, death has always won the battle. But now death, when Christ died on the cross, the innocent sacrifice for our sins, just as in the same way that uh, when a woman is given birth and there comes that moment where there is no don't push. This baby is coming no matter what. I have a friend of mine, uh, he, said, uh, he said his wife told him, whenever the Bible speaks about the birth pains, skip over that because you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so I will skip over the birth pains. I just simply want to say, there does come a moment where it cannot be held back. And the metaphor in this passage is to say, that when the living Son of God who had no sin took all of our sin and died and went down into the grave, there came a moment when just as in birth, death could not hold Him any longer. There was no sin in Christ. He could not be held by death. The cords had to be broken. 
and He came out. And I say to you today, my dear friend, maybe you've had a loved one that's passed away recently. Or maybe you have an illness and you're not sure what life will look like for you. Or maybe you live in fear of what the future may hold. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ has gone down into the belly of hell and He has come up alive, flesh and bone, with victory over death, hell, and the grave. Come awake, come awake. He has defeated it by His mighty power. And because Jesus lives, I shall live. And because Jesus lives, you will live. Death will not hold us in the grave because Christ is in us. And He came out the first time and He'll bring us up again. Christ-centered sermons. Do you preach Christ-centered sermons with your words at the workplace? Tomorrow when you're talking to somebody and they ask you how your weekend went, will you say, man, we had a great service yesterday and everything was good except for the sermon. I mean, you should have heard that music. Listen, do you speak about, do you speak about Jesus freely? Maybe you're at a workplace where you can't quite do that. Do you do it on your break? Do you do it with friends? Do you do it with family? Do you write letters to me? Do you freely speak Christ-centered sermons with your mouth and with your life? Or are there other things that you speak about more? Let me give a little stab to the heart to Steve and maybe to you. What about college football? Oh, you're really going to hit that? It just started, right? I like this 15th century prayer. It's called St. Patrick's Breastplate. Listen to this. Christ be with me. Christ in front. Christ in the rear. Christ within me. Christ below me, Christ above me, Christ at my right hand, Christ at my left hand. Maybe you ought to pray that kind of prayer this week and ask the Lord to wash your mind over with a Christ-centeredness so that everything that you say and everything that you do and everywhere that you go, that you live within the presence of Christ and you become a walking, talking, living sermon that is centered around Jesus Christ. Not only that, but good sermons are convicting. Good sermons are convicting. You know, there are, there are some people who, who, who will preach sermons and they are beautiful in word, but they remind me of cotton candy. They're very big and beautiful and they taste good when you first put it in your mouth, but they disintegrate and they leave you hungry at the end of the day. Good sermons good lives, good speeches, good talks, uh, good communication with people. It's not, just, uh, it's not just passing by. It's not just a regular conversation. But do you have deep, meaningful conversations with unbelievers and with other believers that are convicting in nature both to yourself and to them? I would say, notice here, and you'll see three parts of the heart. Hard hearts, sinful hearts, and broken hearts. Look back at verse number 22, and notice what he says here. Middle of the verse I'll pick up. He says, attested to you by, his, uh, uh, by miracles and wonders and signs. And look, look what it says here. Which God performed through Him in your midst. And then he adds on, he tags on the line. You know this. <laughs> so you know 
You were there. You saw the lame get up and walk. You saw the blind begin to see. You saw the deaf have their ears open. You saw dead boys and girls rise up. You saw lepers get healed. You saw the works of the living Lord Jesus Christ, and yet your heart is hardened. And I would say today that there are people in this room, and you have you could attest that there are times in your life where the Lord Jesus Christ has been real, and He's helped you. I don't know how many times I talk with people, and they say, Pastor, you wouldn't believe I almost got in that wreck. I should have died, but somebody helped me. It was Jesus. Don't harden your heart. As in the day of provocation, so the Bible says, don't be like the Old Testament Israelites. Don't harden your heart. Take the Word of God. Take the food and the drink and do all of this thing and then still bicker and fight and argue and, and do all of that thing. Don't have hard hearts. Don't get to the end of the day and the end of your life and say, I saw all the things that Jesus was doing and I still walked away from Him. Don't have hard hearts. Don't have sinful hearts. Verse number 23. Oh, put him to death. The hands of godless men. Man. I mean, how messed up do we have to be that these people would say, Barabbas is a known thief and a murderer. We want you to release him, but we want you to put to death Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Heal people? What did Jesus do? Love the world? What did Jesus do? Say, come to me and you can have everlasting life. You want to know what's interesting? In the book of Acts, it's a beautiful irony that's going on. It's beautiful and tragic all at the same time. Barabbas is a murderer and Jesus gives life and says, you released the murderer and you put to death the prince of life. Where is the insanity in all of that? And you say, if I would have been there, I would have been different. No, you wouldn't have. No, no, you wouldn't have. We have hard hearts and sinful hearts. I want you to know that Jesus comes and He comes for us. He comes to people who have hard hearts and sinful hearts and He wants to break our heart. Look with me, if you would, at verse number 37. Now when they heard this, you see, Peter preaches. Now when they heard this, they were pierced, they were pricked in the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Has your heart been pierced by the truth of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're in here today and you say, I, 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 my heart was pierced at one point and that's when I gave my life to Christ. But I'm a believer, but I'm, I'm, I'm living far away from the Lord. I, I don't follow hard after Him. I'm not living for Him. I'm reading and praying and worshiping and serving and telling people about Jesus. And I, I'm so concerned with many other things in my life. I, I want to ask you something today. Won't you let your heart be pierced by Jesus Christ? Won't you let your heart be broken? You want to know what the evidence of a broken heart is? What should we do? The evidence of a broken heart is a submission and a, a surrenderedness that comes to the Lord and says, what do you want from my life? Whatever you want, whatever you desire, I'll give it to you. 
Broken hearts don't come into church and demand that things be their way. Broken hearts don't go into your lives and boss people around. Broken hearts don't hurt other people. Broken hearts come to Jesus and say, you're the king of glory. What do you want from my life? I'll give you everything, Lord Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. Do you preach convicting messages with your words? Do you live convicting sermons with your life? Do you speak the gospel to yourself daily and weekly and say, Lord, oh, humble me. Break my hard heart. Break my sinful heart. Help me to have the attitude that says, whatever you want, I will do reading a story this last week about the great preacher George Truitt. He was preaching a week-long revival and this girl brought her father every night to listen to the Word preached. And after a while, the meeting was over and a couple of years later, this guy came to see George Truitt and he said, I have a question for you. He said, you know, I came to that week-long revival and I listened to you preach every night and every time you would preach, Jesus was moving on my heart and I would grab the pew in front of me and hold on and I felt a quaking in my soul, a, a deep conviction. I, I, wanted to, I, I wanted to go down. I wanted to make Jesus my Lord, but there are other things in my life that were pulling me away and at the end of the week, I never gave my heart to Jesus. I, I pulled away from that, but now now I come to hear you periodically and your messages do nothing for me. By the way, that's really discouraging for a pastor to hear. <laughs> they said, George Truity, your sermons, hey, what has changed about you? What have you done differently? How come, how come your sermons don't affect me the same way anymore? George Truett said, I did not have the heart to tell him that there is a line unseen by people that when you've crossed it, you've built such a thick barrier that you'll never let Jesus in. I wonder if there's a person here today and you've been coming here year after year after year hearing people preach Jesus. And you do other things while the sermon's going on and you're just really glad when it's over. And one day it might be too late for you. If I've told you once, I've told you many times, you cannot get saved when you want to. You can only get saved when Christ will allow you to. You're not in control. He is. Don't Reject the convicting of God until the point of no return. Now let me move quickly. Good sermons are scriptural. Good sermons are scriptural. Verse number uh, 16 and verse number 22 through 24, you'll see simply here that the Apostle Peter gives an explanation. 
Right? Verse number 16. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he gives an explanation. And he does the same thing in verse 22 to verse number 24. He gives an explanation of Scripture. Verse 25 to verse number 32. He not only gives an explanation of Scripture, but he unifies the Bible so that he shows you that the Old Testament is not divorced from the New Testament. But in fact, the apostles are saying all along the gospel has been there since the book of Genesis. And so he unifies the word of the living God. Verse number 36 and verse number 37, he simply applies the sermon. And so all good sermons are scriptural. And so in your speech and in your behavior and in the life that you live, do you live a scripture-based life? Does it pour out of you? When you give counsel, when you talk to people, do you tell them what you learned on the news? Do you tell them something you read in an advice column in the newspaper? Or do you have scripture bleeding out of your veins and pouring out of your mouth? Do you live a scripture-based sermon life. Benjamin Franklin was, uh, would often play a ruse on his friends. He, he liked to debate and argue with his friends. And whenever he had come up against somebody who had a better idea than him that he didn't know how to counter, he would say, I know that I'm right. Give me a day to figure it out. <laughs> Instead of going home and meditating about his own position, he had a uh, print shop, right? And so he would go and set up the type to look like a biblical text. He would write out his argument and then print it and put on there John. And he would go back the next day and he would say, I know you think you're right, but you can't argue against Scripture. My fear is that many of us in our life have our own Bibles, our own wisdom, our own ways of thinking, our own traditions. And what we do is we live more by our own traditions than we do by the written, revealed text of Scripture. What we speak and how we live is not based upon our own traditions, but it should be based upon the living Word of God. Amen? Well, let me finish up. I would say lastly... Good sermons are Spirit-empowered sermons. Look back at verse number 4. You'll see how this is framed in the entire argument. The entire group of the apostles, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. You would find that uh, at the last of this, that the Spirit of God is involved in this entire sermon that the Apostle Peter gives. In fact, Peter tries to preach once before and it's no good. And the Spirit of God has to give him the illumination into the text. You say, how do you know he has illumination? He opens up the book of Joel and explains that. He opens up the book of the Psalter and explains that. The Spirit of the living God is giving illumination. Brothers and sisters, as we read the Scripture, as we live godly lives, we must must be constantly asking that the Spirit would be our guide, that He would be our teacher, that He would be our comforter, that He would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of His law. Not only that, the Spirit-empowered sermons are those that are done in the authority of God. Look at verse number 14. He says, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and um, uh, declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to understand is the only ground that we have to stand on of authority is the Word of God empowered by the Spirit of God 
God for us to have the authority to speak into the world's life and say you're going the wrong way. Come unto Jesus. If you try to stand on your own power, in your own wit, with your own ability, in your own skill set, in your own wisdom, you will fail every time. But if you try and tell the world about Jesus and the power and the authority of the Spirit of God, you will succeed. Spirit-empowered sermons bring illumination and authority. In verse number 38, they bring conversion. Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thomas Manton said this, God's mind is revealed in Scripture, but we can see nothing without the spectacles of the Holy Spirit. John Flavel said this, We preach and pray and you hear, but there is no motion Christward until the Spirit of God blows upon us. All is vain unless the Spirit of God comes down in our midst. What's the takeaway today? Three simple things for you to do this week. First of all, trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, the answer for you is to trust, put your confidence in Jesus Christ. The very person of Christ. If you're a believer here today, the answer for you is to get up tomorrow and trust Jesus. Put your confidence in Him every hour. Whatever your work is, whatever your relationships are, just ask Him to come into your life and to give you His mind that you may walk with Him there's nobody that's ever lived that's as smart as Jesus Christ in whatever it is that you do. Trust Jesus Christ. Number two, listen carefully. What I've given you today is not every component of a good sermon, but it's enough to get you started. So when you're listening to sermons from this pulpit, critically, it's fine. When you're listening to sermons on the radio, or on your, um, like from your iTunes, or wherever you listen, listen critically and listen carefully. Are the sermons that you listen to from your friends, what they speak and the way that they live, are they Christ-centered kind of sermons? Are they scriptural kind of sermons? Do they fit what we've talked about today? Are they convicting? Lastly, share clearly. Share clearly. Clearly. The Apostle Peter made no bones about it. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again that you might have everlasting life. You are a sinner. You need Jesus. Trust Him every day of your life. When it comes to the sermon that you'll preach this week, with your mouth, with your life, Will you miss the entire point of the text? Or will you preach a good sermon? You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.